From BYU Broadcasting's Performance Studio, this is Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Sometimes when you hear recordings by Billboard instrumental music chart toppers like Paul Cardall or the Piano Guys, you're partly hearing the work of our guests today. Shane Mickelson is a composer, arranger, and coach who works with some of the biggest names in the world of commercial instrumental music. And of course, he's an accomplished artist in his own right, distinguishing himself early on by finishing an undergrad degree in music when he was just 19 years old. Today, Shane has filled our studio with wonderful musicians, and he'll conduct them through some of his beautiful arrangements of hymn tunes and original pieces, and treat us to some solo piano and, of course, some conversation as well. Here's Shane conducting his friends in the performance of a piece called Annie Jane, live on Highway 89. Coming to you live from our recording studio here at BYU Broadcasting. This is Highway 89 with our guest, Shane Mickelson. Shane, thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. And bringing an entire orchestra with you. I can't believe it. It just happened. You <laughs> told them, invited them, and they showed up. It's a strange thing. Tell us a little bit about Annie Jane, the piece we just heard. Annie Jane is a piece that comes from my album, Classical Hymns, which was released by Stone Angel Music last year. Annie Jane is my daughter's name. And she is almost three, and she is, along with my wife, the light of my life. A lot of the stories that are associated with writing these pieces of music are associated with very late nights and deadlines. So one of the nights that I was 
having an approaching deadline in orchestral recording session the day before. Um, I needed some inspiration on what to write. Didn't know what it was. It was an album of hymns. I just decided that I'd walk into my living room looking for some inspiration, and I found a picture of the three of us, my wife and I, and little Annie. So I went and pulled it out, and I brought it into my studio, and I stuck it up on my monitors, and I'm like, okay, this piece is going to be called Annie Jane. And she was my inspiration as I wrote this piece in one night and sent it over to my flautist over here, Rachel Miles, for approval before we recorded it the next day. Yeah, this is the glamorous side of writing music. It's not fun. All through the night, just like There's that. There's more piece. of that, okay. yeah. <laughs> Introduce us to the players you brought today. All right, so a lot of these players come from sessions that I've recorded with, doing commercial recording sessions previously, community orchestras that I have directed previously, and close friends who I love making music with. We had a solo flute from um, Rachel Miles and her mother, Brenda Miles. We had solo piano played by my mother, Christine Mickelson, and solo clarinet by Darren Beatty, and an ensemble of strings. Can you tell us about the two pieces we're going to hear? First is a hymn arrangement, a familiar hymn tune, followed by an original piece. All right. There is a green hill far away. As part of writing my album, Classical Hymns, we had determined a lot of the framework before we had determined exactly what we were going to do. And part of the framework was we were going to invite Ginny Oaks Baker to perform one of the pieces. I didn't know which piece she was going to perform. Probably not until the day before, probably. That's probably the story with every piece. So we invited Ginny Oaks to come in and play it. And she played it just absolutely beautifully in and out of the session in an hour. It's it's really special to me. I think I actually incorporated another hymn into this that it's not really explicit in the title or anything. And I've actually forgot the name of it. It goes, da, 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 dee, da. There's a hymn that goes like that. You'll hear that also incorporated into There is a Green Hill Far Away. Nice. And piano in D, I guess, shall we listen to decide if it's minor or major? It is in D major. But, you know, this piece has never had a title, and I gave it one for this occasion. For this very... For this very well, occasion. Well, premiering under its new title, we're very excited to present these two Always pieces. Always a new premiere, every time. This is Shane Mickelson. First, there is a Green Hill Far Away, him arrangement, followed by his original composition, Music for Piano in D.
Composer, arranger, Shane Mickelson, his music for piano in D, original composition. Before that, there is a Green Hill Far Away, a hymn arrangement. You know, Shane, when people really get down to it, the fighters say, okay, now the gloves come off. And we're glad you're comfortable because you have kicked off your slippers. Yes, I have. I forgot stock- to wear my shoes here. Stocking feet here, so we know you're right at home, so I'm really glad. Thank you I very last much. met you when you were, I don't know, 14, 15. You had a bit of peach fuzz on your upper lip, and you were in marching band, and we talked about music just a little bit. That is right. 2003, I believe, Costa Cruz Lines, age 11 turning 12. Oh, okay. Performing right. that season in You're From Camorra's Hill, you were like... A Mozart kind of guy to me. I was happy to meet you. Well, I'm glad you've expanded your musical world. <laughs> the uh, beginnings of your composing career had a lot to do with your mother, actually, who we just heard play the piano on the opening piece. Yes, my mother. My mother is, um, she studied piano performance and um, choral education at Utah State University. She comes from a family, a very large family. Same two parents had 17, and she's the ninth of the 17, all playing musical instruments. It was a very important thing for both of my grandparents that all their kids played musical instruments, and my hundred or so cousins all play them too. There's Um, the full orchestra, right? There's the orchestra. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have any of them here besides my mom. But my mother, yeah, she came from that stock, and I like to say, well, she's my musical idol. She um, taught me ever since I was little. Uh, Maybe when I was five, six, seven, she offered to teach me piano, and I said, no, thanks, until my sister started taking from another teacher, and I never wanted my sister to be better at anything than I was. So I said, Mom, can I take piano? And I quit after a year because I didn't like the structure. I just wanted to practice on my own. But she was my guide and my mentor. She taught me, she got me through the undergraduate courses of music theory before I even went to college. And then she got me into a music school um, when I was 16 so I could graduate when I was 19. And she was always my ear training coach, my music theory coach. If you want to learn saxophone, I'll get you a saxophone. If you want to learn the clarinet, I'll get you a clarinet. She is the reason why I can do any of the things that I do. Nice. Well, that's great that she's also here to hear this tribute. Yes. I'm looking over. Mom, are, you're beaming. Yes, she's. I can verify she's actually beaming. Good. Okay. But there was another big step. You're still very young. I want to hear about the wolf and the seven kids. The wolf and the seven kids. <laughs> Who is this wolf that threatens me? I don't dare to refuse. I wrote an opera when I was an undergraduate, <laughs> in, and I was. it was my last year of college. I was 18, and I had always tried to write musicals ever since I had been... In From Comoros Hill, with your production, I was like, man, music is just too cool to leave alone. I have to write things in order to feel the fulfillment of the music. When I was in middle school, I tried to write a musical called um, War and Peace. You know, there's a book <laughs> Just about a very it. short musical. Um, okay. <laughs> a whole bunch of, I made a whole list of them in word processors, made up little things, and I'd always fail at them. I'd go and I'd just try to write them all, and I would fail. But I was determined that I'd write something. So I was 18. I was at Utah State University, and my opera coach, Lynn Keisker, I said, I want to write something. She's like, well, show me what you got. So I brought her an overture that I wrote. She said, you finish this. We'll put it on. And it was originally going to be the Three Billy Goats Gruff. I wrote it halfway through. Then I scrapped it. And my mom helped me again. And she said, Shane, have you thought about the fairy tale, The Wolf and the Seven Kids? She told me the story. She's like, I'll help you write the libretto, the words that go along with the opera. If you have a libretto you can write to, maybe you'll succeed at writing your opera. And that was the missing trick. That was the missing piece to learning to write something is when I was writing music by music, and of course I was very inexperienced and very young, I just couldn't get past one note past the other. It was like riding a bicycle looking straight down at the road and I can't stay on the lines. But if I lift my gaze a little bit and I look at the broader picture, I can steady that bicycle and stay on the lines. And that's what having a libretto did for me, Mm. is I was able to finish it. I wrote it in about a month and fully orchestrated it, got an orchestra, and we performed The Wolf and the Seven Kids, a one-act children's opera for children and adults, I guess, at Utah State University in January on Mozart's birthday, 27th. 2010 was the premiere. I'm actually kind of sad we're not hearing a number from that on this program. I'll sing you a number for that. (laughs) Well, we did hear a little preview there. We're going to hear again a hymn arrangement followed by an original piece. This is A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief.
pair of pieces from Shane Mickelson, A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief, a hymn arrangement, and Sweet Baby Sleep, an original piece sung by Casey Mickelson. Any relation? My wife, yes. I was guessing. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) And that's from an album of lullabies, I believe. An album of lullabies that has yet to be released. We'll record it in 30 days. In 30 days, we're going to record Sweet Baby Sleep. It's an album of lullabies for soprano and orchestra. Very nice. Well, we mentioned that you had your undergrad at 19, learning music theory around age of 12, the opera you wrote. Now you're a grown-up. Yeah. Actually, still a fairly young person with a lot of great gifts, but was there a difficult transition to being sort of uh, the, the wunderkind to being just a grown-up? Well, letdown? I like it a lot better just being a grown-up. It's just, it's, it's better than, I mean, I don't like doing tricks and it was hard, I guess, socially because I was always several years under my peers. I mm-hmm. was only the age of a college freshman by the time I graduated, so I felt like I couldn't even go on dates with anybody until I graduated from college. But luckily, I snuck two dates in before I graduated from college and dated my wife a little before I went on an LDS mission trip. Well, she sings so well, I, I crossed my mind that she might have been auditioning as well as just dating. So. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the first time I met her was at a master class, and she sang the most beautiful song, and I looked up, and I'm like, okay, that's going to be the one I'm going to marry. And I married her five years later. Okay, very nice. We have a lot of artists come through the studio, but not often do we have conductors with the group. Tell me just a little bit about the conducting aspect. I mean, you put music down on paper, but then what happens when you're actually conducting and working with the group? What do you enjoy about that? For me... That is so much more enjoyable than writing the music. I write the music so I can conduct it and so I can hear it because I actually do like listening to my music. But the act of composing, it's like I'll, I'll turn on Netflix and get some McDonald's before I'll compose. That is, <laughs> composing is not my favorite. But it's what I do so I can have the experiences that I want, which are conducting and performing music that I've written. Are you ever surprised by something that players add that was oh, unexpected to you? All the time. You know, performing musicians have so much say in how the piece actually sounds. It's like the composer is a recipe writer and the musicians are the chef. It's like there is no food with no, without a chef. You can't just write a recipe. Yeah, there's so much that goes into it. I think that oftentimes composers can be glorified for what they write on the paper. And while, yeah, you can and you can be impressed by it, it's like the music is not there without performers. Mm. 
Tell us about these next two pieces we're going to hear. I Stand All Amazed, another piano arrangement from my album, Classical Hymns. The way we did the recording on Classical Hymns is we had about enough budget to record nine or so songs with the orchestra. Or maybe I just ran out of time and only wrote nine for the orchestra. (laughs) After the fact, it's like, okay, I'll save some piano stuff and I'll write that after the fact. So called my mom up. I said, hey, mom. I scheduled the studio tomorrow, and we're going to record this piano piece. Since you're a great pianist, and I'm a utility pianist, not a performing pianist, I'd like you to perform on it, and I'll give you the music tomorrow when I'm done writing it. And she said, okay, I'll do that. Dropped it off at her house. We played through it once, and I went to the studio. And she laid down these piano pieces on my album. Very nice. So who's playing it for us today? I'll play it for you today. All right. Because I practiced yesterday on (laughs) Facebook Live. I'm impressed with a whole day of practice. We're going to hear what that can yield now. First, I stand all amazed, followed by The Swing.
pair of pieces from Shane Mickelson. We just heard the swing before that hymn arrangement. I stand all amazed. Where's that text from for the swing? Um, it's on my music. Casey? What is, Robert Louis Stevenson. He had a way with words. <laughs> Definitely did. <laughs> Besides what we're hearing today, you also write what we call 20th century compositions, freestyle, atonality, serialism, yes. impressionism, electroacoustic compositions. That is very true. So what you've brought to us today on Highway 89 is... Uh, is what the people like to hear. <laughs> okay, I was wondering how you're going to interpret that. Does this tie in with core beliefs, it seems like, with these hymn arrangements? In what sense? Core... Spiritual anchors for you or landmarks. I'm just wondering, what does that satisfy a different part of you than that other work? Okay, so, yeah, as a composer, I definitely feel multiple facets and multiple yearnings. I find a lot of satisfaction in writing commercial work and works that other people, I'd say the general population is more in tune with. Mm -hmm. So things that start and end in a key that have a lot of harmony that people are used to. And I find a lot of meaning in that as long as I'm able to tie it in in what I might say is well-crafted. Now, I don't find that everything that I do in that realm ends up being well-crafted because it ends up being kind of deadlined. But the other part of me that I feel drawn to in that more modern classical style, such as like modern atonality, modern impressionism, freestyle atonality, I have a great affinity for that kind of music as well. And having my ears exposed to all the different sonic possibilities, and I'm very intrigued by those things. But say if you went and heard my string quartet that I wrote in my master's degree, my grandma and grandpa came to that. They kind of, maybe my grandma wanted to plug your ears a little bit. My grandpa <laughs> a little bit was like trying to wrap his mind around it, and that is different, but he still felt, Shane, you did a really, really good job. But yeah, the, that kind of music is very, I find some great peop- things in Some both. people would say that's more intellectual what you're enjoying is the the puzzle or the understanding of it but do you find that there's an emotional side of that as well oh for sure i do find that even when i'm writing in modern kind of modern classical styles it doesn't appeal to most people i find myself my most free and my most emotional and most expressive in that realm just because when i'm in the realm like what the music that we're listening to today it is so easy for your ear to catch on to things that it has heard more than 15,000 times and a half. When you do that, sometimes your ear just gets captured by it and it's not listening to the music for what it is. It, it grabs onto other things. And I like that clean slate of, wow, I've never heard anything like this before. We're going to hear some contrasting things, I think, next. First excerpts from the Jordan River Temple Youth Celebration. This is music you wrote for that. Yes, I scored about 20 minutes of orchestral music for that celebration. And then we're going to hear three requiem movements. They're titled, as near as I can tell, one, two, and three. Yes. Do they correspond with typical requiem mass movements? They do not. The requiem is, in a nutshell, movement three is the combination of movements one and two. However, there is still a significance in the breaks, and that is the first section of the music is very reminiscent of mourning, and death, uncertainty. The second section of it, which you might say is the second movement, begins with that uncertainty of death and turns into an extremely hopeful sense of, well, I believe in the resurrection, and that is what that symbolizes for me. Loss, confusion of death, and then hope of the resurrection, the two sections of the Requiem. Shane Mickelson, composer, conductor, arranger. We'll hear first musical excerpts from the Jordan River Temple Youth Celebration, followed by movements from Requiem.
First musical excerpts from the Jordan River Temple Youth Celebration and Requiem by Shane Mickelson. Shane, anyone who has gone through the college education as well as piano and any of those kind of things gets a bit of acquaintance from everybody, including Bach to Brahms. And I'm wondering if you have favorites or maybe even composers from the past that you think they are kind of most the flavor you like or, or you get the most influence from. That's a very interesting question. Tchaikovsky is one of the best and most underrated composers, in my opinion. Every time I listen to Tchaikovsky and Dvorak, I'm absolutely amazed at their craftsmanship. I love listening to Mozart. I don't love performing it because it's too hard. Um, It's so transparent. So I admire so much, and I really seek, um, even though I fall short often, to find well-craftedness to be... That's just something I really care about. But, you know, if I were to tell you my top three, Stravinsky's my top, Leonard Bernstein's my second, then I have a really good third, and I just never remember him. It might be George Gershwin, might be someone <laughs> else, but those are my top. And what does well-crafted mean to you? Well-crafted means, let me just show you my favorite quote by Stravinsky, and that is, most art is bad. And I love that quote, because most art is bad. I love that. So well-crafted, <laughs> you know, it's too broad, but I like to think that music has meaning in and of itself without necessarily needing to attach things to it. And so when a piece of music... Like a title. Yes, <laughs> even a title. Music is what you hear, nothing else. So music should be able to stand on its own. Now, I'm not saying music that doesn't is bad, but the thing that makes my soul sing about music, music that has the ability to stand on its own and also have self-meaning or intrinsic worth, that is the music that makes my soul really happy. People will hear music, it will have different effects, and that's got to be one of the more satisfying things, I think, maybe as a composer, if it's reached somebody. I'm wondering what that experience has been like for you. This piece that we just played, The Requiem, released on March 30th or 31st, last year, 2017, a few days or maybe the day before, there was an airplane accident that took place in New Mexico involving an Air Force pilot and a couple of pilots that died in an accident. One of the wives of one of the people in that same squadron, her husband did not die, but they're a squadron and they're close together, so they lost really dear friends in that accident. The day that that happened, she went and she looked on iTunes for music. I don't remember what she searched, but something that would help. And this Requiem was the first thing that appeared on iTunes, and she found it, and she said that it spoke everything that her soul needed to hear about how she was going to see those friends again. She painted a beautiful, she's an artist, she painted this beautiful portrait of an airplane sailing into the sunset with an American flag just, what's the word, just hidden in those clouds. And she made a time lapse of that painting where where she painted it and she put my music to it because it touched her that way. And that is, I should say, one of the most fulfilling things about it is, yes, being able to see that music touch other people. Yeah, what a great story. What a great specific example. When you sit down and you take a piece and you think, well, for instance, one of these hymns people have heard a hundred times, if not a thousand, in their lifetime, depending on their age, how do you approach it and think, I need to do something a little bit different? This Abide With Me has a story to it, and I'll make it quick, but I approach arranging with that if I don't have something new to say, I shouldn't say anything at all. I don't want to add noise to a conversation, and that's what I think music is. I think music, through the history through story, through the atmosphere that we live in, is all a conversation. And if I make an arrangement of something, it'll either be, it's like me talking while someone else is talking. It's like it's not needed. It's not, unless I have something new to say, something that brings the conversation forward, then I say, I don't really want to do that. It was, again, a deadline the night before a big um, recording session with an orchestra, and I needed one more orchestral piece to do. I was at that point where I'm like, okay, I'm forcing it because it's the night before and forcing it means that I'm just going to do something that everyone else has done. And so I prayed and I said, Heavenly Father, please help me know what to do with this song because I have to record it tomorrow, which means I have to write it tonight. He said in my mind what I felt, go to bed, get some sleep. It was past midnight. Wake up in a couple hours, go to the piano, something will come to you, you'll just play it. Then you'll reach a climax point where you feel the music is nice and open, and you'll know in that moment which hymn you're supposed to pair it with. So I said, okay. Did that exact same thing, got up, started writing a melody that just came to me, da-da-dee, that you'll just hear in a few minutes, and got to his huge half cadence, 
on A in the key of D, suspended D to C sharp, and I'm like, I know what's coming next. It's Abide With Me. And I wrote out Abide With Me, and that's how this piece went. Great to hear the story, and then let us hear that development and kind of experience it with you after the fact. Thank you. Here is Shane Mickelson. Our musicians are here in the room with us on this arrangement of Abide With Me. Coming to you live from Studio 6, we've just heard Abide With Me, Shane Mickelson and the orchestra. What a pleasure to have you in the studio today. Thank you, Shane, very much. Thank you so much. And to all of the players to perform the music, you can find out more about Shane's work as a composer, arranger, coach, and musician at his website, MickelsonMusic.com, M-I-C-K-E-L-S-E-N. If you just caught part of the show, want to hear the beginning or listen again, share it with a friend. It's easy to do. All of our shows are archived online for free on-demand listening at byuradio.org highway89. Also follow us on Twitter at BYUH89 for live show updates, special behind-the-scenes photos, and video clips. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. The recording engineer is Mark Waite. Our student assistants are Victoria Khalil, Naomi Campbell, and Marin Del Rio. Our producer is Sam Payne. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>